This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to welcome back Dr. Louis Fatouhi, an author and researcher in Islamic studies and comparative religion. You're most welcome, sir. I welcome, uh, Paul. Thank you very much for inviting me back to this fantastic channel. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's good to see you again. And for those who don't know, um, just to remind you, Dr. Fatoui was born in Baghdad in Iraq and migrated to the UK in the 1990s. He has a PhD in astronomy from Durham University, one of Britain's leading universities. He came originally from a Christian family, but reverted to Islam in his early 20s. He has published over 25 books in English and Arabic in Islamic studies and published over 25 research papers in cosmology and applied historical astronomy and on the Islamic calendar. Today, Dr. Fatoui has kindly agreed to give a clear and easy to understand overview of the controversial subject of abrogation in Islam. He would discuss its history, what different scholars have said about it, problems it tries to solve, problems it might introduce, including those that are picked up in anti-Islam polemics. The goal is to help us as viewers, even if we have not heard of abrogation, have a clear and concise but complete understanding of all the issues involved. So this is quite an information-rich program, um, a lot of content uh, for our benefit. So I hand over to you, sir. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, now, before I start, as, as you, Paul, uh, said, uh, abrogation is a very controversial subject. Um, it's little known uh, to, the, to many Muslims. Um, they might have heard of it, but probably they don't know fully the implications uh, of this doctrine. Uh, yet at the same time, it's, um, it has a long history uh, that extends probably from the second century or so uh, uh, of Islam uh, and developed over a long period of time. It has a huge significance uh, for a variety of subjects uh, that are very critical uh, to Islam. And uh, what I'm going to do, I will be reviewing, um, I'm going to introduce the uh, subject of abrogation. I'm going to try to make it as easy as possible, avoiding any too technical details, let's say. Uh, but Paul, um, please do help me by interjecting every now and then. And stop me, please, if I say something that's not very clear. Um, and I really appreciate your help with that. Well, it's very, very, very generous of you to uh, uh, offer that. So thank you for that. Um, so uh, I will also, in the course of this uh, discussion uh, be presenting the views of various scholars as well as uh, my own uh, take on things. Uh, I hope to provide enough information uh, for the viewers, uh, to any viewer really, uh, to first of all, uh, to have a clear um, kind of complete understanding of what abrogation is about, 
and also uh, to put them uh, on a pathway where they can follow further information and seek further information if they want to look into more detail into what I'm going to say. Uh, I'll try my best uh, to uh, kind of uh, mention any references where I've taken anything, hadith in particular, of course. When there's an ayah, I always am um, averse. I always mention um, the number and the chapter. So again, it should be easier for viewers uh, to check for themselves and um, take it any further. Mm. Okay. Uh, now, to make things easier, um, I am going to uh, share here uh, my presentation. Um, here we go. Yep. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Right. So what are the critical issues that we um, that the subject of abrogation uh, touches on? First of all, it deals with the final divine, divine laws. So as we know, uh, the Quran was revealed over 22 years. Um, this is a long period of time during which changes did happen, circumstances changed, circumstances of the Muslim community. Uh, obviously, they moved from, from Mecca to Medina at some point, and 20, 22 years is a long period of time. Um, so uh, one uh, objective of abrogation is to try and study the final laws, the laws that survive and we call Sharia, which are obviously uh, very important uh, for the for every Muslim, hmm. um, the second subject that again is kind of uh, important, of course, is the relationship between the Quran and su the Sunnah. Um, that's also, um, you know, for obvious reasons, is a very important subject. Now, the Quran uh, at times appear to have some contradictions. Contradictions in terms of one law uh, or one statement that seems to say something about um, um, or convey a particular um, ruling and another that seems to be slightly different. Mm. Now, I'm calling it contradiction um, is a bit of a kind of big term, but that's how it's seen by, by some, which is why they then use the concept of abrogation to try a reconcile uh, uh, such statements. Mm. And then the the subject of the preservation uh, of the Quranic revelation. Now, I have to admit, when I started studying abrogation, uh, my interest was really more in this last particular topic. I'm not a jurist. Uh, Sharia is important, but I'm not a jurist myself. Uh, but my interest was, and I work always with, uh, with the tafsir and history and the Quran. So my interest was more in history and the history of the Quranic text, which actually what led me to study this subject in, in considerable uh, details. And the, the questions really we have here, uh, more specifically about the preservation of the Quran is, do we have all of the Quranic verses that were revealed to the Prophet That's really the big question. So um, I will be dealing, um, introdu introducing abrogation in general, dealing with um, the other issues, but I will be focusing much of this um, interview on this uh, latter subject, the preservation of the Quranic text. Okay. Now, first of all, uh, let me define what abrogation 
is. Hmm. Abrogation, there's a standard definition, the, the easy definition, if you like. This is how um, this complex subject starts. It starts with a simple um, definition that kind of promises um, simplicity and clarity. But once you've gone a bit further, slightly further in the study of the subject, it turns into something completely different, far more complex, complicated. The standard definition is that <clears throat> uh, abrogation is the annulment of one legal ruling by another. So it's no different in Islamic uh, law and Islamic studies from its definition in any other legal context. Mm. The abrogation, abolition, abolishment, if you like, of a particular law, but replacing it with, with another. That is the standard uh, definition. Abrogation as a doctrine is accepted by most scholars. And I mean by that scholars from different schools, mm. Jays, Sunnis, um, also they are different flavors, if you like, um, um, Wahhabis, Sufis, Salafis, etc., all of them, generally, by, by and large. Um, now, that doesn't mean that everybody accepted, accepted it, uh, but most um, uh, accepted abrogation. Mm. Uh, in the recent years, and more kind of in the last few decades, there have been more uh, scholars coming out uh, criticizing abrogation and kind of finding issues with it more than happened over many centuries in the past. Mm. Uh, I will be covering some of this, but we will see why, what issues they are coming up against. Mm. There, there are two sources of legislation in Islam, the Quran and the Sunnah, of course. Yeah. Um, um, when you look at um, some people include consensus, Ijma'a. Yes. Ijma'a actually isn't, strictly speaking, a, a third source of legislation in usul, uh, because it's ultimately has to rely on the Sunnah uh, and the Quran. So no group of Muslims, regardless of how many they are, can come together, agree on something, uh, and uh, consider it as part of Islam if it's not supported by the Quran or the Sunnah. Uh, so these are the two sources. And there are four different types of abrogation. We can have the Quran abrogating the Quran or the Sunnah abrogating the Sunnah, the Quran abrogating Sunnah and Sunnah abrogating Quran. Wow. Uh, that's, that's uh, most scholars accept that, but not all of them. Not all of them. Shafi'i, for instance, separated the two. He accepted abrogation, so the abrogation uh, as a principle, and accepted the abrogation of the Quran by the Quran and the Sunnah by the Sunnah, but not between the two. Mm. Uh, in this regard, he's very much in the minority. Uh, there's also one narrative attributed to uh, Ibn Hanbal that also agrees with this particular uh, opinion. The most cases of abrogation are actually uh, cases of Quranic abrogation, not Sunnah. So there are um, some cases of Sunnah abrogation, but the overwhelming majority 
uh, are Quranic studies. So if you pick up any book on uh, Nesh, as it's known in Arabic, or abrogation, that's what you find it focused on mainly, as well as um, some cases, of course, uh, where it deals uh, with, um, with the Sunnah. Now, there's one interesting fact here, in, here that, is, that, that I should mention. Despite the fact that there are hundreds of claims of abrogation cases, and when I say hundreds of claims, as in hundreds of verses that have been claimed to have been abrogated, there is not a single verse, no, a single hadith that says ruling so-and-so or this particular verse was abrogated by this verse. Mm. There is no such a statement anywhere mm. in the Quran or in the Sunnah. All our, all cases of abrogations are concluded indirectly. Right. So there is no such a statement. So yeah. just, 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 I found that a very helpful observation you just made. So there's no explicit statement of abrogation. A abrogates B or nullifies B, although it is apparent to scholars that that is what is happening, but it's not explicitly stated. And I think that's very interesting. Thank you for that. Uh, obviously, that's what we find scholars, the claims of scholars all the time. Yes. yes. The Quran itself has yes. no such, such a statement. The Sunnah itself has no such statement. And that should be considered a significance for, for this very simple reason. If abrogation is as critical as, um, as kind of all-encompassing as we're going to see, then surely you would have expected this to be mentioned at least once, twice, uh, but not, it isn't. So even though abrogation of the Sunnah isn't, um, strictly speaking, the subject here, but I would like to cover it for the benefit um, of viewers. So uh, the Sunnah can be abrogated in two ways, as we mentioned, by the Quran or by the Sunnah. So what's an example of abrogation oh. by the Quran? Changing the Qibla is usually taken as an example of abrogation of the Sunnah because, as we know, the verse talks about changing the Qibla. So the question is, but how did they, the Muslims know up to that point what, where they should be facing when they pray? So the implication is that the Prophet ﷺ must have told them that. Yes. Now, they, 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 were, they were praying, weren't they, towards Jerusalem, I think, uh, originally in their prayers. So Muslims weren't facing Mecca, they were facing Jerusalem. Then the Quran in a revelation came along and, and told the Muslims to pray in a different direction to, towards Mecca, obviously. Thank you, Paul. Absolutely spot on. So, so the question is, if, if the change is mentioned, but the first Qibla isn't mentioned, in the Quran, then where did it come from? It must have been the Prophet ﷺ who told them about that. So this is taken as an example yeah. uh, of um, changing the, uh, of um, an abrogation of the Sunnah uh, by the Quran. Um, okay, fasting Ramadan. Um, when the Prophet ﷺ went to Medina, he was told that the Jews there used to fast a day called Ashura which was related to their um, history about uh, Prophet Musa, Moses. But when he was told that, uh, history tells us that he said to, to the Muslims, well, uh, we should then also 
be fasting Ashura because I'm as close to Moses as any. There are two stories. One of them suggests that he made that obligatory, uh, and others suggest that he made it optional. And the further uh, history tells us that later on, when Ramadan uh, uh, was revealed, the fasting of Ramadan revealed in the Quran, the Muslims stopped uh, fasting Ashura. That became, it became also some stories suggest it became uh, optional after it was obligatory, because there are two different versions. But that's another example uh, of um, uh, the Sunnah being abrogated uh, by the Quran. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. An example of the abrogation of Sunnah by the Sunnah. Now, we have a story when the Prophet uh, was, um, was not feeling well, and uh, he prayed uh, while sitting. So he was the Imam, and he was sitting, and Muslims were praying behind him, uh, and they sat because he was sitting. Gosh. Uh, so that was the first ruling, uh, ruling from Sunnah that if the Imam sat, while praying because he wasn't, he couldn't stand. Uh, then uh, you do the same. Uh, later on, uh, in uh, towards the end of his life, when he was ill in his uh, more or less last um, illness, uh, when he went to pray, um, he sat, but he asked um, Abu Bakr to lead the prayer on his behalf effectively. And then, uh, because he was sitting, he asked. Um, Abu Bakr actually to stand as usual and pray and that is considered as an example where Sunnah was abrogated by Sunnah because even though the Prophet ﷺ, uh, sat uh, the Abu Bakr and the rest of the Muslims actually um, stood uh, when praying like we do today very interesting um, quickly another example um, there's a story about the sacrifices of um, the Hajj uh, the Prophet at some point um, said that you cannot uh, store the meat uh, of the sacrifices for more than three days. Um, but later on, uh, he allowed Muslims to store it for longer. Uh, there are reasons why uh, people uh, think he did that. At times they say because there was some kind of starvation in that area and there were people coming um, to, for the Hajj, and he wanted some of the meat to be left there for those who are going to arrive, who are in need of food. Uh, but regardless of why he uh, stated that, um, the uh, history tells us that later, 
uh, he changed that um, ruling. So that's another example. Uh, there are others like um, visiting um, um, uh, tombs. Uh, again, it was banned, then he allowed it. Um, um, making juice in certain containers, uh, that's apple, apple, um, for instance, juice or date juice. Uh, apparently, uh, they say because these containers were used to be used uh, for making um, wine, alcoholic, etc., drinks in the past. He didn't want that uh, to kind of uh, happen in, in, inadvertently, so he's prevented Muslims from using them. But later on, when this uh, is no more, uh, there's no more risk of that, he allowed them to use uh, those containers. Would another example be the, the writing down of the Quran itself in the early days? The, did the Prophet prohibit the, the physical writing down of the ayat, but then for, ver for various reasons, but later on permitted it for another set of reasons? That's absolutely true. I think it all hinges on, on the earlier story, whether there was, okay. uh, that was indeed not the case, as in not don't write down. But yes, absolutely, uh, uh, absolutely spot on. Any case whereby a ruling was later abrogated, changed by another, uh, is considered as a standard case of abrogation. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, abrogation uh, of the Quran, this is where most cases of abrogation are. Um, even though I don't cover this in detail, uh, we're talking hundreds of verses. Ibn Jawzi considered 247 claims. Wow. Of abrogation. Um, now, the seriousness of this uh, shows more when you look at a subject like um, the uh, the sword verse, the so-called verse of the sword. Uh, according to some well-known jurists, like Ibn al-Arabi, that's not to be confused with Ibn Arabi, the Sufi Sheikh, uh, Ibn, Ibn al-Arabi, who said that this particular verse uh, abrogated every verse that tolerated the polytheists, um, allowed for having peace with them, etc. just about basically blanket uh, abrogation. Um, one scholar, um, 20th century scholar, counted over 140 verses of the Quran that deal with peace and um, basically allowing the polytheists and others to cohabit with Muslims that are said to have been abrogated by this particular verse, which is verse number five uh, of the chapter Tawbah. Uh, but that's just, just um, you know, a side example I wanted to mention here because just to show the number of cases and how serious it can get at times when you have this kind of, um, uh, kind of yeah. uncontrolled really claim. Again, uh, here we have two cases, um, abrogation by the Quran and, and by the Sunnah. Uh, the most obvious case uh, that just about everybody who believes in the obligation refers to is the case when uh, the Muslims were ordered uh, to pay charity, charity before they have an audience with the Prophet Sallallahu which was later uh, rescinded. Um, or oh, that's how the verse is understood. That is how it's understood. Yeah. Now, in my personal view, there is actually no abrogation even in there. The, the idea here or the concept um, that all accept is that if two rulings can be reconciled, then you don't have a case of abrogation. Yeah. And in my view, this particular verse, we don't, can't get into it, it's too technical. 
uh, is not necessarily a case of abrogation. Now, what I should say about this verse is that this is the one verse that everybody who believes in abrogation believes to be a case of abrogation. The one verse. And the why well, is well, it? Well, but which verse is that? Do you know? Have you got the reference, please? Yeah, it's in Mujadala number 13, uh, Surah Al Mujadala. Um, I, I have it here in Arabic. Or you who believe, if you wanted to have an audience with the Prophet, then present before that a charity, some kind of donation, if you like. Uh, and then uh, it, 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 and it tells them um, that this is better for you, etc. But the verse goes on to say, and if you don't, and if you can't do that, something along these lines, and Allah has forgiven you, then X, Y, Z, as if you continue, there's, you don't need then to, uh, to do that. That's how it's understood. I don't actually see necessarily this is a case of abrogation, uh, but that is the verse that, that is accepted by everybody who accepts abrogation. But this is the only one. Why is it the only one, even though we have lots of cases of abrogation? Because even when you have, because some, some scholars accepted as few as five cases. Siyote accepted only 20, 20, 22. Depends on how you read his text. Yeah. So accepted only, say, 20. Uh, whereas there are others who accepted over 200. Um, and the one verse that appears uh, as among the accepted cases for all of these is this one verse. Uh, there's also another example. I'm just giving examples here. Um, there is um, a, a verse uh, that talks about the rights of widows to lodging and maintenance. And that right is usually those rights are for one whole year. But there's another verse that seems to talk about the same rights, this time for four months and 10 days. If you consider both verses, to be talking about the same subject, then clearly you have a change in the ruling here from one year, and it was shortened to uh, four months and 10 days. The verses for those who want to check is Al-Baqarah or chapter two, verses 240, and chapter two, Ayyadan Al-Baqarah, also Baqarah, uh, this is 234. These are the two verses. If you want. Again, in my view, there's absolutely no connection between the two. They complement each other. It's not a case of contradiction. When it comes to by the Sunnah, Quran by the Sunnah, there's only really one case, and it is not a confirmed case. So we know in the Quran there is uh, the verse of the will where uh, Muslims are um, anybody who's about to die is instructed uh, to write a will uh, in which um, you know they they say well, who should get what of whatever they left uh, behind. But then then there's another verse in which gives kind of details about who should get what. That's the one that says you know the verse where the male would have double. Uh, the portion of the female, etc. That is a very detailed verse. Uh, verse uh, Ayat al-Mirath, the inheritance verse. So 
the 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 there's also another hadith uh, that says la wasiya li warith i think if i la wasiya li warith so you should not leave a will for somebody who is um who is going to inherit anyway who is going to inherit now there's a couple of issues here first of all if you consider the instruction to leave a world to have been followed by another ayah in which uh, which states who should get what amount then at best you must say this is a case of abrogation of the quran by the quran in this case uh, the prophet sallallahu is only kind of confirming stressing what the quran is saying so if somebody has been given an amount in the verse of inheritance then you don't make a will for that person and in this case the hadith is only clarifying i'm not aware of any other case of in which uh, the sunnah is said to have abrogated the quran uh, also this hadith uh, in the eyes of many is uh, a had not mutawatir not successive now this is a serious issue why because the quran is successive mutawatir so it uh, uh, it reaches through a variety of people number of different people mutawatir usually is defined defined um, differently by the scholars but it's no less than four um, different roots if you like and sources independent sources uh, but the main thing about mutawatir is that uh, the number of people and who these people are must be such that their all being wrong is impossible that's basically the principle which is why ibn hajar didn't actually say exactly in his book how many people would make uh, a hadith mutawatir it's more of quality if you like uh, of the information we have but anyway the point here is that this is a had not mutawatir and it's only the only case uh, of uh, abrogation of the quran by sunnah if at all now how can our, how do people usually kind of justify or scholars say oh is this really possible well this is the ayah they rely on i've talked about the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam nor does he speak from his own desires it is not but a revelation that revealed this is kind of um in huwa illa wahyun yuha wa ma yantiqu an alhawa in huwa illa wahyun yuha so scholars who believe that the Quran um, can be abrogated by Sunnah, uh, point to this verse and say, well, yes, the Quran is the word of God. But then at the same time, this ayah tells us the Prophet Sallallahu wouldn't abrogate something in the Quran unless he was also, uh, unless he received some inspiration, some revelation to this effect. In which case, the source is the one and the same. The medium is different. So the source this time directly let's say from Allah the Quran came from uh, Jibril uh, the outcome is one in this and this is the verse that is usually uh, relied on um and the verse that is used by those who reject the concept that the Quran can be abrogated by the uh the quran can be abrogated by the sunnah is and when our verses are recited to them as a clear evidence 
Those who do not expect the meeting with us say, bring us a Quran other than this or change it. Say, it is not for me to change it of my own accord. I only follow what is revealed to me. I, I noticed, by the way, you're, you're quoting, I think, from the Abdul Halim translation. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so what you have here is a verse that clearly um, the prophet seems to be um, neutral, if you like, uh, in that saying, I'm, I'm a third party to the Quran. Yeah. It's effectively, I'm no more than a medium here through which this Quran reaches you. I can't change it. I can't change nothing. This is the polytheist, obviously, challenging yeah. him to change it for whatever reasons they want him to do that. And he's saying, I can't do it. Now, obviously, um, some scholars can still come back and say, yes, of course, that verse is completely true. But if he were to change it, that still wouldn't be from him. That would be from God. And then the point here is that this discussion is inconclusive and it can go on forever. And it has been. Yes. So, uh, uh, the, but as I said, some uh, do not allow and a minority do not allow the abrogation of the Quran uh, by Sunnah. There is one point I would want to raise here. The Quran describes the role of the prophet with respect to the Quran. So he's a messenger. A messenger carries a message. A messenger does not change a message. Hmm. He talks about him, and I read here specifically from Ayat, وَأَنزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ الذِّكْرَ لِتُبَيِّنَ للناس. And we have sent down to you, the dhikr, dhikr means remembrance, one of the names of the Quran, to clarify, to explain to people. Now, this particular um, function of the Prophet ﷺ is mentioned twice. One is in verse 44 of the chapter of An-Nahl, which is 16, and the other in same chapter, and this is number 64, 44 and 64 of chapter 16. So in both cases, the verb used, لِتُبَيِّنَ لَهُمْ To explain to them, to show them, um, to convey to them. There is no, at no point in there, in the Quran, we find a similar, a, a, a verb, a different verb, conveying a different function along the lines of abrogate. That's one point, one argument also made by people who do not accept the abrogation of the Sunnah, hmm. by of the Quran by the Sunnah. Yeah. Is everything clear so far? Very clear, thank you. Uh, Modes of abrogation. There are three different modes of abrogation. The first one and the major one. This is called legal abrogation. I call it legal, uh, but that my translation, um, it's called Nesh al-Hukm Tilawa, the abrogation of, of a ruling, but not its wording. A ruling, but not its wording. This, which is why you see I've put a, uh, check there. To, so the ruling stays, but the text is is abrogated. 
Um, the second is called legal textual. That's again my translation. It in Arabic it says uh, abrogation of, of a ruling and its wording or the text basically that conveyed that ruling. The third, and you'll see we'll have the full set of them now, the textual, this is when we have the text or the wording uh, abrogated, but not the ruling. That's the exact opposite of legal abrogation. Um, now, I'm not going to focus on legal abrogation, like I said earlier. The other two are the two that I'm going to um, deal with because they are the ones relevant to the uh, to the issue of the preservation of the Quranic text. Um, in terms of acceptance of abrogation, I mentioned earlier that the majority accepted it, but there has been uh, exceptions to the case. One name that comes up in the literature, um, I'm talking about early literature, somebody called Abu Muslim, Abu Muslim al-Isfahani, is a Mu'tazili, a Mu'tazilite. Uh, obviously, Mu'tazilis are more kind of rationalist, if you like. At times, uh, they, are, they take more freedom in terms of dismissing hadith more than others. Yeah. Obviously, I don't subscribe to the um, school of thought that dismiss them altogether uh, just because they disagree with some hadith, nor I you know, like to support anybody who dismiss any particular school of thought completely. It's more healthier to talk about specific ideas. Mu'tazili, in this case, uh, basically, this particular Mu'tazili thinker, scholar, rejected the concept uh, of abrogation. And he has kind of some, uh, um, came up with some explanations as to why. Um, the, there are references in the early literature of abrogation to some unnamed people, uh, probably also of similar thinking, kind of, whether Mu'tazili or not. Uh, they also kind of um, uh, disagreed or rejected abrogation. So, so there are some complaints uh, by early sources uh, on this subject. Um, I should say here that um, legal textual, uh, the, the last two, the legal textual and textual uh, abrogations are less accepted than the legal abrogation. Anybody, who accepts abrogation must have accepted legal abrogation. And as we will see, historically speaking, this is the first form of abrogation that appears in literature. So there was legal abrogation, and I'll come to this later, and there was no hint of the other two. These two appeared later. That's what the literature uh, tells us. Um, the legal textual abrogation was not accepted by Shafi'i. At the same time, um, but he accepted textual ab uh, abrogation implicitly. Uh, Tabari did not mention anything about textual uh, abrogation. So dif some, dif some differences between scholars, in particular with these two, but there's uh, more or less agreement uh, on legal abrogation. Now, with our interest here being these two, the number two and number three, this takes us to um, two important related concepts, but they are not exactly the same. The Quran and the Mus'haf. Oh. So 
Uh, this is an image I, I found it useful to explain to help with the kind of explanation. So the light here is a reference to the Quran, and then the physical uh, book is the Mus'haf. So what are these two and how, they, how do they relate to each other? So the Quran is the revelation that the Prophet ﷺ received. These are what he heard uh, from um, Sayyidina Jibreel, Gabriel. The Mus'haf is the record of this revelation. It's where it's recorded. So revelation is more, is, is non-physical, if you like. Record is physical. Uh, you can look at it as the source. That's the revelation, the Quran, whereas the Mus'haf is the document. So when, strictly speaking, when we say Quran today, what we really mean Mus'haf often, when we say Quran, we should be meaning the revelation itself. The, so we often, you know, when we talk and say, oh, this is my Quran, what I mean, my Mus'haf, that's my kind of uh, version of the Quran. The Quranic revelation, of course, by definition, chronological. So it was revealed over 22 years, and by definition, it was a chronological. The structure of the surahs and verses in the Mus'haf is not chronological. No. It was to a specific order. Uh, most scholars believe that this is how the Prophet ﷺ wanted it to be. So it was his own order, but there are some differences in opinion. So there's one Quran, but there are different looking Mus'hafs. And the reason, because uh, a Mus'haf um, will have um, different, for instance, script used to write, um, even the number of pages, uh, this would also be different. Um, there are a variety of, so you can look at a number of different Mus'haf. I've got a few here. They are different, but obviously the underlying revelation is one and the same. Now, the reason we're talking about, if you look at all these descriptions, there isn't really much of a difference between them in substance, as in the revelation here is there. Uh, the difference is that the wording, the verses at times, are not in chronological order, they aren't. Um, and also, uh, they, uh, obviously, they're different looking because a Mus'haf has to be written down on certain material in a particular font, etc. all that particular script. But the two abrogations we spoke about earlier, textual and legal textual abrogation, introduce a significant and substantial difference between the two. They imply that the Mus'haf is not a complete record of the Qur'an. The Mus'haf, because when we spoke about the abrogation of the wording, not the ruling, the wording, every time you say a wording of the Qur'an, a text of the Qur'an was abrogated, whether its ruling remained operative or not, you're effectively saying that this does not exist in the Mus'haf because it has no other meaning. It can only have any meaning with the reference to where it was written down. Mm. Otherwise, it would have uh, no meaning. Yeah. Now, uh, most people know, but I'll say quickly, Quran is derived from Qira'a, Qara'a, read, because it was read to the Prophet ﷺ. He read it as well. Mus'haf, on the other hand, uh, means any compilation, compiled sheets, uh, of 
um, pages, if you like. So, and it, it occurs in the Quran eight times, eight times, um, in, including uh, in, the, in, in the context talking about Suhifu Musa, sheets of um, Moses. Can I just clarify uh, for myself and others that the, the Mushaf you refer to, for example, I, I've got this book here, I've already referred to it, the Quran, uh, a new translation by Abdul Halim. That is not a mushaf, is it? Because it's not in the Arabic. It's not the orig- It's not the Arabic Quran. It's called the Quran, but it's yeah. not a mushaf. This is a translation into another language. Uh, so this is not the mushaf you're speaking of. That is the original Arabic uh, and only the Arabic. It's not like half Arabic, half English. It's only the Arabic uh, Quran itself is called the mushaf. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, historically speaking, uh, Muslims always avoided even writing anything, if possible, on the margins of their yeah. mushaf. So uh, the texts were considered sacred from day one. Wow. And uh, Muslims always made sure that it is distinct from, obviously, over time, like you're absolutely right, when we took translate, we still refer interchangeably, you use these two words, and, and also refer even to translations as being Quran, etc. And most people probably understand what it means, but there are some technical differences that are important to highlight here. Yeah. Thank you. So I mentioned earlier that uh, abrogation introduces significant substantial difference uh, between the two. Now, uh, uh, there is no, the Quran is the, the message of the Prophet and the material he used, he had nothing else. No, no other literature, no other teachings. It is the source. Even when we talk about the Sunnah, the Sunnah also was sourced from the Quran. It's not something different. Ultimately, regardless of how he was inspired, it's based and obviously supports the Quran. In the Quran, there is no concept of incomplete Quran as such. The Quran talks about a Quran. There's one concept. You can't look and find inside the Quran for any other kind of part of the Quran, if you like, mm. or, or some but not other. This is there's only one concept, and it is the concept, the message, the Quran, the book, the kitab, etc. Mm. That's very important because the concept of a book being an incomplete and the only surviving record of the Quran is quite strange from this point of view. Okay, so where does this idea come from? The idea that some verses were abrogated as in uh, disappeared or... This is the, the main verse that is usually referred to, Al-Baqarah 2106. And whatever ayah we abrogate, uh, uh, the, the word that I've got, Nansukh, or cause to be forgotten, we bring a better or the like of, of it. So the word, the critical word is ayah. Do you not know that Allah is powerful over all everything? Now, couple of things to highlight here. The, this explanation, this interpretation, presumes that ayah here means verse. 
If it doesn't mean this, the case for obligation based on this, in the sense we're talking about, becomes just basically loses its grounds. So if ayah here means something else, then that's the case. That that's not then an abrogation of text. Uh, the word ayah in Arabic uh, means sign, mm. means a proof. Uh, a sub meaning of that is a Quranic verse. Because if you think about it, everything around us is an ayah. Everything. Mm. The Quran itself is one ayah as a whole, or multiple ayahs, if you like. Mm. Uh, but it's still a subset of the whole universe and everything around us that is considered as ayah, which is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to the creation uh, of the earth, uh, heavens, um, the, every form of creation, everything around us, we see uh, night and day, everything is an ayah. So this is uh, a particular kind of meaning that is being presumed here, that it means uh, Quranic um, text. And forgotten is, is, is interesting here because uh, there are two ways apparently for this ayah to disappear or to be abrogated, either to abrogate nansukh or to be forgotten. Now, what, what this is, what's interesting here is that this seems to be a distinction between two different things then. Mm. There's abrogation, nansukh, and apparently there's something else called forgotten. And then, if we were then to use this verse as the basis of the concept of abrogation, then we surely have to talk about two different things, apparently. One is called abrogation, and the, word, the other one is forgetting um, verses, effectively, which is different. And the other question is, why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala abrogate or cause to be forgotten something, an ayah, a verse, just to bring a better or the like of it. And what does better mean? We don't have this concept of one ayah is better than others, and then we list them, starting with the best, and then go downward. Mm. There's no such a concept. And the other thing is, if, if the replacement is of one verse with another, what does mean the like of it? What, what does that mean? So that looks like sounds a particularly random thing to do, which, of course, Allah wouldn't do, wouldn't have done. So that's kind of some of the um, um, objections here. The other one, I mentioned that the main form of abrogation is legal abrogation, so abrogation of uh, rulings. Now, the word ayah is not really used in the Quran to mean a ruling. It doesn't. It's not used in that sense. Um, there are other words like, uh, hukum, so hukum, um, ruling, uh, ahkam, you know, rulings. But ayah itself is not used in this particular sense as, as a ruling. Ayah is more like uh, proof, um, indication that, you know, something, in, uh, you know, pointing uh, to Allah. Mm-hmm. Now, this is another verse that, If you look at the word ayah in this particular verse, and I wanted to link these two, because you're but a man, you're but a man like ourselves, so bring an ayah if you are one of the truthful. Now, this is surely isn't a challenge to bring 
an ayah as in a verse. Mm -hmm. This is a challenge to bring an, an, a miracle, something paranormal, something so impressive that they will say, yes, that surely uh, has come uh, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is just kind of one verse. I wanted to uh, put it next to it. And why is that? Because one principle a lot of scholars follow when studying the Quran, uh, interpreting it, which I personally adopt, is called Al-Quran Yufassiru Ba'adahu Ba'adah. Al-Quran Yufassiru Ba'adahu Ba'adah. The Quran interprets itself. So if you want to uh, make sure you understand a particular expression uh, or particular issue, you, you, you ought to look at everything or references, related references in the Quran to ensure that you have a holistic view and you're closer to understanding what the text might be talking about. This translation, which we're quoting, well, which I quote from as well, Abdul Halim, one of perhaps the many scholars say it's the gold standard in English translations of the Quran. In this particular verse you cited, he, he translates, uh, show us a sign if you are telling the truth. So right. it's exactly, exactly what you're saying. Ayah there means a sign, like a miracle, rather than a, a verse of the Quran itself. So that, that, that translation would uh, confirm your interpretation as well. Absolutely, uh, Paul. Thank you. Um, that's they have, I didn't know about the translation, um, their translation that they've gone with this particular, but that's kind of the standard. And this is what, what the text seems to say, naturally what the te text seems to suggest. I think one issue we have when we study um, the Quran and when at times it, it's how to kind of um, leave all the baggage aside and try and kind of just approach it as neutrally as possible. And this is difficult. This is hard. That for me, hard for you, hard for everybody. But it's one thing that we need always to try and do. Often, the, any interpretation that looks to be really manufactured comes from effectively relying more on the baggage than effectively the text in its pure form without kind of projecting on it something we already believe in. Um, there's another ayah or another concept, it's called the replacement of ayahs. So that's also been cited as evidence to support the case for abrogation. And this is the verse in the question. When we replace an ayah with another ayah, and Allah knows better what he sends down, they say you are only a forger. No, rather most of them have no knowledge. Um, now, for instance, Tabari links this um, ayah to the earlier ayah we spoke about, which he also uh, talks about in the context of abrogation. Uh, this is quite a standard um, ayah to quote and seek for support. Now, one thing interesting about this ayah, um, this is from Surah Al-Nahl. It's uh, a Meccan ayah. Now, one interesting thing about it is that um, there was no abrogation in Mecca. All the cases of abrogation that scholars talk about are all Medanite. Mm -hmm. Now, why would there be such a verse in Mecca if it actually 
what it's talking about is ayah, as in verse. The almost uh, all agree that the, the the first case of abrogation was the change of qibla, which happened obviously in year two uh, after the migration of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi Um In these um, uh, verses, the alternative interpretation that's adopted by some scholars is that what the ayah, what the, what Allah subhanahu wa taala here is talking about, ayah in the sense of sign. A sign could be. Um, a, a miracle could be, and also it's not talking always at the time of the prophet. So here, for instance, Muhammad Abdu, for instance, the reformist, the Egyptian reformist from the 19th century and 20th, early 20th century, uh, also took it to mean effectively uh, the replacement of all the signs with the new ones. So the Prophet in his time was like a new proof, a new um, evidence uh, on Allah, on the message of the oneness of Allah, etc. All these concepts he represented and he was evidence, new evidence of. And in that context, um, in that way, uh, a lot of scholars think that ayah should be understood in this way. And I would do what I did earlier with the previous slide, and I would quote a similar verse here and look at that. Ask the children of Israel how many a clear ayah we have given them, and whoever replaces the favor of Allah after it has come to him, then indeed Allah is severe in punishment and penalty. Now, what's interesting is that both verses use exactly the same wording, ayah for ayah, and the verb beddel, or you beddel, or you beddel, beddel, uh, replace. So both of them. Now, if you read the second ayah, surely you aren't going to say here, the Allah is talking about the verse. It isn't. No, indeed. On the other hand, you may argue and say verses are not replaceable. Again, this is some uh, text uh, to this effect. Uh, recite what has been revealed to you of the book of your Lord. There is no changer of his words. Now, changer here is the same verb, la mubeddil. Mubeddil as in change or replace. Um, uh, the words of God. And another verse, which kind of give the same meaning, is saying. What's interesting here is that every time, uh, there are four times where the words, the the, uh, uh, the the word word, if you like, is the subject of change. So when the meaning is intended to be about text, there is actually in the verb, in the verse, what refers explicitly to that. So we have four, four cases where the subject is uh, the word word or words, twice saying, and twice the Quran itself mm. as a text. So these are eight references in which the Allah obviously is talking rhetorically here that there is no, nobody can change uh, the word. And the word is used, not ayah, is talking about um, words. 
Now, this is where uh, we're going to get into kind of details of abrogation of text. So, if abrogation happened, um, scholars thought of we needed a mechanism for that. How did text that was revealed at some point, because that's what the Quran is, ultimately text, even though it's read, how did it go away? And that is the verse that is usually used. We shall make you read, read nuqri'uka. Uh, nuqri'uka means make you read Quran here. It doesn't mean just read, read Quran, so that you do not forget. Accept what Allah wills. He knows what is manifest and what is hidden. Now, the way I read it here, is a confirmation that he, as in the Prophet ﷺ, won't forget. Not that he will forget, he won't forget. Now, but they say, accept what Allah wills. So what is that? Well, uh, that's a general expression that is used elsewhere in the Quran. And it does not mean, it, it does not mean that there will be exceptions there. And, um, if you look at this, and do not say of anything, I will do it tomorrow, except if Allah wills. I remember your Lord when you forget. Now, look at the context of forget there. Clearly, the context of forget here isn't forgetting a particular verse. This is about the Prophet ﷺ being told that um, you don't rely completely on Allah. He wanted his mindset to be completely and utterly owned by Allah. So every time he says, even saying, I want to do something, whether he says it explicitly or it has to be there at least implicitly, he's thinking that I am an instrument in the hands of Allah. That's the purpose of this ayah. It doesn't mean that he was, every time the Prophet Every time said anything, 100% every time he said, inshallah, inshallah. That's not the point. The point is that that's the mindset that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made him live in. If at times there was any element of forgetness, then this is a reminder that he should not. So remember your Lord when you forget. Remember, because that's an element of forgetness in the case of the Prophet to forget that. It won't happen. It cannot happen without Allah's support. What is demanded of him probably was much even more than what's demanded of any one of us. So that's kind of the highest standards set in this particular ayah. But as you can see, the uh, concept of forgetting uh, isn't actually anything to do with forgetting verses. And this is another one. Um, this is uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this comes after, and if Satan should cause you to forget, then do not remain after the reminder with the wrongdoing people. This comes after he's told them, don't sit with those who speak offensively uh, about us, about the revelation. And obviously at times, he would probably take some people for kind of as like seriously trying to discuss the Quran, etc. And this is a reminder for to him that 
some of these people are only trying to offend you, trying to offend our message. They are not serious. So once you realize mm. he was very keen on converting as many people, talking to as many people as possible, uh, mm. he's being reminded here. Now, the forgetting here, as you can see, is also uh, forgetting that has nothing to do uh, with forgetting the Quran. And it just shows, shows that uh, the concept of forgetting there uh, can also equally be understood as something to do with forgetting an element of behavior or certain behaviors. In fact, uh, Qurtubi, uh, the exegete, famous exegete, uh, quotes um, a well-known Sufi sheikh called Junaid Baghdadi. And according to Junaid Baghdadi, he was a third century scholar, uh, he thinks that um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the, in the first verse talking about applying something, anything in the Quran. So any element of forgetting any instruction is being referred to here, nothing else. Of course, except what wills, um, probably people know there are verses in the Quran where this very expression is used about things that, that we know will happen. So for instance, uh, there is, um, talks Allah about the, those in, in, uh, who go to paradise and those who go to hell being there forever. Allah, except what Allah wills. Now, that verse and that expression does not negate the many other verses that confirm the eternal nature of what happens there. This is again a reminder as if he's saying, even though I've said that, I've confirmed that, I'm reminding you, this is my will. That's what I wanted. Allah does what he wants. That's really the context of that. Nothing to do with being uh, making the prophet forget certain things. Hmm. Right. So now that some scholars, a lot of scholars, accepted forgetting as a mechanism uh, for abrogation. We look at the literature and we see it's full of references to various stories of forgetting. And I've called them natural and supernatural because, because of the nature of them, basically. And this is one example. Now, uh, this is um, a story that the Prophet Sallallahu uh, once uh, was praying and it looks like he might have forgotten something. That's the, that the, uh, the, the account that we have, uh, which, is, which comes from Bukhari, by the way. And then uh, um, he forgotten something or um, an ayah or so. So after he finished, somebody asked him and said, did something happen during the prayer? So I presume asking him, was there like something unusual? Uh, and he told them no, uh, and he explained uh, that I'm a human being like you, so I'm liable to forget like you. If I forget, remind me. Now, why I'm citing this particular story? Um, uh, simply because it shows, um, it talks about an element of kind of a human forget forgetting, basically. There's no, it's not a divine tool as abrogation presents forgetting. Um, it just, the prophets say, at times I forget. Now, this is, like I say, mentioned in, in Bukhari. Um, another story. 
Um, now, this is a quite, a quite um, some, um, again, this comes from Bukhari. The, the Prophet um, is said to have one night heard somebody, and he said, he read in the Quran, and he said, he has reminded me of so-and-so verses that I had been made to forget from chapter so-and-so. This hadith has every element of forgery. And let me tell you why. No historian would report anything in which, or accept anything in which all the information that is of significance is missing. We don't know who that man is. We don't know what verses we're talking about. And we have no idea even the chapters uh, they belong to. The, the event is completely casual. So the Prophet heard someone where, how, we have no idea. Whoever reported this hadith or the story is clearly not very much interested in giving us what the details are. Um, it's just so casual. Now, at, this, at, the other, at the same time, it's kind of the forgetting has become completely aimless. So he was made to forget, but then he heard this man and he remembered. So what is the point exactly? If that wasn't um, a kind of a human forgetting an instance of, you know, failure of memory, let's say, if it was true, let's, let's accept that, then uh, obviously that, that, that's understandable. But you can't say, we can't say this was, this is a divine instrument that made the prophet forget, which is what forgetting is um, according to the doctrine of abrogation. Yet he was reminded in a casual way by some, somebody who we don't know, and the whole forgetting has just became nothing, basically, because he's remembered everything. What's interesting is that this particular um, hadith, um, Bukhari has another, uh, sorry, not Bukhari, actually, uh, other uh, scholars, not Bukhari, have a version of it in which it says that I had forgotten not I had been made to forget. So that seems to be kind of trying to reconcile, well, what's the point if he was made to forget, suggesting it was divine or Allah, and then he was reminded, makes no sense. So this other version sounds more kind of reasonable, if you like. It says he forgot and then he remembered. Um, and this is um, another uh, saying. Um, this, this one uh, comes from uh, Ahmed, Ahmed bin Hanbal. Now, um, admittedly, Ahmed bin Hanbal uh, collected a huge number of hadith. And uh, a lot of people know that a lot of them are weak, incorrect, so people don't accept everything there. But the point here isn't that real. The point is that this is the material of abrogation. Hmm. So there wasn't much. Stop there. Let's look at the hadith. Oh, this is weak. This is ahad. This is not mutawatir. Not, not really. A lot of the time, not to say all the time, everything was accepted. But the material, this is very common material in the literature uh, of, uh, of abrogation. Now, here we've got, we've got uh, Ubay uh, asking uh, the prophet. Um, he prayed, the prophet prayed uh, Fajr. 
um, the dawn prayer, left out a particular verse. So Ubay, after the prayer, asked him, was verse so-and-so abrogated or did you forget it? And the prophet uh, replies, I was made to forget it. Again, uh, the problem you see here is the distinct distinguishing abrogation from forgetting. But then the whole point of forgetting is, well, it was like the kind of divine instrument or the way abrogation took place, if you like. So it becomes kind of quite aimless there. At the same time, uh, we need to remember there are a lot of hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ talks about the importance of memorizing, learning the Quran. So these kind of hadith, I mean, come across as a quite shocking and very difficult to reconcile. So I'm going to quote one hadith here uh, that goes, the sins of my, my ummah, my nation, were paraded in front of me. And I did not see a graver sin than that of a man who forgets a chapter or verse after it was made known to him. That comes from Termidi. Now, that's completely in, impossible to reconcile with what we see here. And let's just think about it slightly differently. If this is the state of the Prophet if he forgot his own revelation, the revelation that he received from Allah, about which Allah subhanahu told him, فَلَا تَنْسَى So that you do not forget. If that what happened to him, well, what are the chances that the Quran, the revelation, has actually survived? Um, if, a, if a verse can be forgotten, well, then we have to talk about a lot more instances of verses being distorted. That's, that's natural, because forgetting is more of an extreme case of a failure of memory or whatever it is. Then if he forgot verses, well, how many uh, verses then um, were kind of had their wordings change, etc. It just opens up um, a lot of possibilities really, and I find it difficult to defend those. And if that wasn't good enough, we have what I call large-scale forgetting. Now, we're getting into real stuff now, hmm. Paul. So, the story here is that Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, who was Medwali, governor of Basra, called 300 readers of the Quran, and he was uh, preaching to them he tells them, before you, this is a companion, by the way. We used to read a chapter that we used to liken in length and strength to bara'a, bara'a or called tawbah, which I was made to forget, but I have memorized of it, of this of it. He mentioned just single piece of text. We also used to read a chapter we likened to one of the musabbihat. Musabbihat, this is a group of chapters that start with variations of the word sabbaha, sabbaha. Glorify, which I had been made to forget, but I remember this of it. And again, he cites a little reference. This hadith, and now just to give you an idea what that means, bara'a is 129 verses. 129. So Abu Musa al-Ash'ari has forgotten a whole chapter that was this long. Now, what's also strange about 
the what he's saying here is the the personal tone of of what he's talking about. So he's called these three hundred readers of the Quran, and he's supposedly to be a higher authority, talking to them, advising them how to be careful of the Quran. But then, if that's a personal experience, well, where is that chapter? Couldn't we find it? Where is it? It must be somewhere. Um, and he could have easily, presumably, asked someone about it. It looks like a completely different journal of hadith here. This is talking about personal experience, and it makes no sense, really. And this hadith comes from Muslim, no less. So this isn't uh, from some uh, unknown source. A different story from Ahmed bin Hanbal. This is Ubay, uh, the Sahabi, asking uh, a Tabi'i um, successor, how long Zirb bin Hubaysh? How long is the chapter of Ahzab that you read? This is chapter number 33. And he says 70 odd verses. Ubay replies, I read it with the Prophet and it was like Al-Baqarah or even longer. It contained the stoning verse. Now, the Al-Ahzab uh, 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 currently 73 verses. If it was as long as Al-Baqarah, then we have 213 verses missing. And according to Ubay, he also identified one of those verses, and it is um, the you know, so-called stoning verse, Ayatul Raj. Ayatul Raj. There is another hadith, actually, I have it here, not there, uh, in my notes, uh, from Hudayfa, um, and this is found in a book of hadith called Musannaf Abi Shiba, um, uh, uh, which is uh, the third century, uh, early third century. I think is earlier than Bukhari as well. And um, he's talking about um, the uh, chapter of Bara'a or, um, or Tawbah. And he's telling somebody, you don't read today more than a quarter of what was, a quarter. Now, if we know Bara'a is 129 verses, then uh, this hadith suggests 387 verses of that chapter uh, have gone missing somehow. There are actually also uh, narratives about whole, verse, whole chapters not being there. So Musannaf uh, Mus, Mus, ibn Hanbal uh, ibn Shiva talks about uh, two verses called Al-Hafd wal-Khala. Um, they mentioned in other sources. So that's large-scale forgetting. I have done a partial count of inexistent verses. So verses that are said to have been in the Quran, revealed in the Quran, but they did not survive. And I used only three hadith. And out of these, I came up with this. Interesting. The blue is the number of verses we have in the Mus'haf today. This is the number of wow. missing verses just from these three hadith. And if 
if somebody is more interested in math, then that's about 10.5% of the revelation. And that's only the three hadiths. One of them is from Muslim, which is obviously highly regarded. I consider this situation um, preposterous. I don't and I cannot accept it. Um, if somebody thinks that this represents rejection of hadith, well, it isn't. That represents a rejection of a particular journal of hadith that cannot be actual, um, that cannot be real, that cannot be uh, authentic. The Quran was the message itself. Quran is Muhammad وسلم, and Muhammad is the Quran. I can't accept, no one should accept that the Quran can be can have this done to it, not given what we're gonna get to later, because this is not just, there are other things we're gonna discuss, which make clear that this, this just cannot be the case. If this, um, if this was, um, kind of, if we were given this kind of uh, pie chart about um, Christian sources, we would have torn them apart. Mm. We would have had a really heyday. We would have enjoyed ourselves. But that comes from that. Now, something I should have mentioned earlier, when we talk about the preservation of the Quran and the accusations that the Mus'haf is incomplete or some verses, um, disappeared somehow. Uh, often we remember Orientalists, Western scholars, non-Muslim scholars. None of this discussion, we will not mention any, anybody who's not a Muslim. This is all within Islamic literature. So this isn't really somebody who's done this to us. And um, it is what we find in our own literature. Moving on, problems um, in legal textual abrogation. This is when both the text and the ruling disappear, like the examples we've just seen, because we don't know even the ayat, what these were. We have no idea what these were. Now, hundreds of clearly non-legal verses. Now, if abrogation is talking about supposedly um, texts that have some legal sense, then clearly we're talking about hundreds of non-legal verses. Also, we seem to have forgotten and unforgotten texts. So some texts that survived, so, and some that did not. What we have here really is a doctrine, and I'm talking about abrogation, that has been developed to cater for random narratives. Pull them together, and create a theme of them. There's a theme, there's a concept, and that is considered as a divine instrument. So abrogation is presented as divine instrument. Why? These scholars didn't do this out of any bad intention, of course not. Their main intention is to defend the Quran and the Mus'haf, both of them. So they want to say the Quran, uh, Quranic revelation, was not lost. Anything that did not survive in the Mus'haf 
it did so because Allah wanted it to be so. So the Mus'haf effectively is the revelation of the Quran that Allah wanted to stay to the very end, if you like, to stay forever. The Quran, however, is a bigger um, corpus of revelation that includes verses that, again, Allah uh, removed for reasons he knows. Now, when you have this kind of doctrine, like abrogation in this sense, yes, it is trying to explain uh, certain narratives, but I wouldn't be surprised personally if it ended up sourcing some of them because it's very suggestive. Anything that looks, that potentially looks like, potentially can develop into a story, can develop into a story now. I've got the doctrine there that can justify why it has these verses, etc., were removed. Um, there's one particular example I would want to mention of um, here. There's um, a passage, uh, they call it, um, it goes something like that. I'll read it here in one of its versions. This is supposed to have been abrogated. If the son of Adam possessed two valleys of gold, he would want another. Nothing fills the soul of the son of Adam but dust. Allah forgives whom he likes. This is supposedly, according to Ibn Abbas, was a verse. Now, what's interesting about that is that, first of all, it's not legal. So there's no legal ruling there. Uh, it's not clear why, if this was a verse, why it would be removed. It looks like just a saying. It looks completely common sense, very much you know, in line with what the Quran teaches us about the human nature. But for some reason, it, it, it's not there. Um, it's mentioned in Ahmed, this particular verse, in more than 20 versions. Uh, Bukhari has it five times. Once uh, um, in, in a hadith that doubts it's a verse, uh, in the three hadith, uh, just mention it as hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, a fifth as, uh, as a verse that was abrogated by another verse, Al-Hakum Al-Takathur, about, you know, multiplying has kept you busy, you know, um, given having lots of children. Um, in Muslim, it, it, again, it's mentioned because it's in the hadith I cited earlier about Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, when he said, I forgot this whole chapter, which is, was as long as Bara'a, apart from, this is actually the text that I removed from, from there. That's a particular text, again, uh, mentioned uh, in Muslim, at times as verse, as in there, at times as hadith as well. So obviously what Bukhari Muslim trying to do here um, just collect um, narratives that they heard, not necessarily saying that is not, you know, um, correct or that, and they seem to contradict each other, just they listed them. Uh, but then if that's the case, then clearly some critical work needs to be done in terms of making sense of these narratives there, because they cannot be reconciled, uh, all of them. Now we move to the um, textual abrogation. This is when 
um, we have cases of verses that had their text removed, but the word, uh, sorry, the wording removed, but the text, the ruling remained there. There are actually only three cases. One of them isn't even uh, worth talking about because it's about one extra word. They say in, in, in the current Mus'haf, it's not in the current Mus'haf, but it's not actually. Um, it's just a case of uh, interpretation. It's not nothing to do. It's about fasting, where it says um, three days, um, as in successive, the word successive in some narrative is, is, is said to be a part of the verse. So that's, that's one case I'm not going to discuss. But this is interesting because uh, this particular hadith um, comes from um, Muslim, Nasa'i, and others. Um, this is attributed to Sayyidina Aisha. In what was sent down of the Quran, there used to be 10 attested sucklings that set the ban of marriage. Um, what's talking about here is that the number of times um, an, an, a small child uh, would uh, be suckled by somebody such that he wouldn't be legally, he cannot get married to that woman or a daughter of that woman or somebody else she suckled. So the hadith is saying there used to be, going to read it, in what we was sent down of the Quran, there used to be 10 attested sucklings. So there's a verse that said 10 times, 10 sucklings would then ban this particular um, child from getting married to the woman who suckled him or any other daughter of that woman or any girl she suckled. But then, then uh, the hadith goes, then they were abrogated by five attested ones. So the 10, the verse of 10, was replaced by another, uh, that's five. And then it goes on, the prophet died and they, so the five sucklings verse, were still being read as part of the Quran. Um, now, obviously, the first thing you notice there, apart from the case of um, double abrogation is the fact that this is a case of abrogation apparently after the Quran somehow, after the Prophet So um, abrogation is supposed to have happened all during his life. Well, what we're talking about here, surely we can't treat it as abrogation even in the sense it's defined. This lacks seems to have just gone missing somehow. <clears throat> the ruling, however, um, survived apparently for uh, some scholars, uh, not all of them. Some people have tried to explain this away. Um, Zarkashi, for instance, uh, tried to say that this abrogation happened shortly before the death of the Prophet. So some Muslims didn't know uh, about the abrogation. And that's what Aisha is talking about. Well, that's not really what the Hadith says. The Hadith is pretty clear that they were being still, these, this verse was still part of the Qur'an uh, when the uh, Prophet died. Um, now, there is another uh, version of this hadith in Muslim. What's interesting here, it does not have the ending. The Prophet died and they, the five circles, were still being read as part of the, it, it's the same hadith, but doesn't have this controversial ending. Now, 
Paul, you do a lot of New Testament criticism and stuff. Imagine if this was found in the New Testament. So you have like a verse, occurs one place without the Son of God, and another with the Son of God. We would immediately say, here we go, manipulation, something went terribly wrong, etc. And we would probably uh, cast doubt on the whole text anyway, let alone any part of it. But that actually happens in the first verse in Mark's Gospel, where uh, the Son of God is there in, in some translations, but it's it's not there in earlier versions. And so it's seen as, as a later edition. That, that, that very example of the Son of God in, in Mark is seen as a, a later interpolation. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And obviously, what's interesting here is that um, Malik and Abu Hanifa, in their legal system, they accept one suckling as banning marriage. So clearly they haven't gone even with the five suckling in this hadith. Um, um, and uh, so uh, in terms of legal system, the hadith is there. It's in Muslim. It's accepted um, when uh, people talk about abrogation. Yet the jurists, for some reason, actually didn't take uh, much notice uh, in it. Um, Shafi'i did, but um, Malik, Malik said, acknowledged. Malik, what's interesting case of Malik, he acknowledged the hadith, but he said, this is not what the practice is, because he was very much focused on the practice of they called Ahl Medina, the people of Medina. So he's effectively saying this is not what used to be the standard practice in Medina. So he didn't go with this ruling in the hadith. So this is one of the two cases. The second is the stoning verse. Uh-huh. This, is, this is this great the famous controversial one. Yeah. 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 Well, as if the first, the earlier ones weren't, but um, well, this, this is even more so. Even more so. <laughs> uh, so um, here's the, the version, the text of it, uh, as it occurs in Malik, Ahmed, Nisa'i, Ibn Majah, other books of hadith. If a sheikh and sheikh commit adultery, then stone them. Absolutely. As a punishment from Allah, and Allah is mighty wise. Um, this is attributed to Umar, Umar bin Khattab, um, the, usually where it came from, most of the sources. One thing to notice about there is, is, the, is the word sheikh and sheikha. Mm. Um, they are taken to mean married man and married woman. Because in the Quran, um, the uh, punishment for unmarried or, or doesn't say married or unmarried is um, whooping, uh, flogging. Here, because we have this particular verse or passage, um, uh, jurists and scholars, um, they've concluded this is talking about married people. Yep. If married people, then this will happen to them. Now, what's interesting is that the word sheikh and sheikha in the Quran why is it important to look at the meaning of how these words are used in the Quran? Because that's the Arabic of the time, how it was used. Right. Sheikh means an old man. Yeah. An old man. Sheikh doesn't exist because the word for, for that is ajuz. Uh, it's a different word altogether. So how sheikh was made the feminine of sheikh in this context, and both were taken to mean a married man, and woman, uh, I have no idea. 
but that's basically uh, what it, it's, it's taken uh, to mean. Now, this is, comes from Muslim, Bukhari, Abu Dawood. This is uh, Umar talking uh, from the pulpit. Allah sent Muhammad in truth, and he sent down to him, on him the book. Among what Allah sent down is the stoning verse. We read it, understood it, and memorized it. The messenger of Allah stoned, and we stoned after him. I fear that after some time, someone might say, we do not find the verse of stoning in the book of Allah. So they go astray by abandoning a commandment that Allah revealed. So what's kind of, a lot of things are intriguing about this. First of all, um, Omar here is talking to Muslims in Medina and telling them that apparently they didn't know uh, the prophet stoned or they did not believe he stoned some people. Um, they, they don't seem to be aware of something called textual abrogation, or they did not believe in it. Because he's telling them, if it's not there, don't worry, it's okay. The legal is, is, is still valid. Um, and then what's also here, it's kind of interesting. The, the word book, book of Allah, this is quite strange because Book of Allah is the Quran. Now, what we seem to be kind of confusion here, because the book of Allah is the Quran, and we use that to refer to the whole revelation. But obviously, he's using it here to refer to the Mus'haf specifically, but then the, the verse is not in the Mus'haf. So is the Mus'haf the book of Allah? Well, if the Mus'haf is the book of Allah, what is the Quran then? Because the Quran is actually bigger than the Mus'haf, supposedly, according to this hadith. Um, so the, the other thing to uh, kind of highlight here is the, the, the kind of, again, if you, what I mentioned earlier, if you put yourself in the, in the kind of in that place and try to imagine what we people were thinking, what Omar was trying to tell them. What was this, if that was what he was saying here, what was the status of everything else then? That's actually the kind of lecture, Muslims, he wasn't lecturing to anybody. Surely Sahaba were sitting there, Huffal, memorizers of the Quran were sitting there. Scholars, those people who lived with the Prophet from day one, some of them, and throughout. So he was actually giving a sermon to these people telling them that kind of thing. If that was the status of Muslim, do we really accept that? If we do, if we do, we have to revise our understanding of the Muslim community and the first generation of Muslims and basically everything that we receive from that generation. If that, if that is the case, it's a serious thing. Now, where does this come from, all this kind of emphasis on the stoning verse? And I didn't get into that in my slides, but I'll talk about it briefly. Because there are um, uh, um, hadiths about the Prophet ﷺ stoning um, certain people, individuals, uh, who committed adultery. What's interesting about those hadiths um, is when you kind of look at even about how he behaved, even the Prophet ﷺ, the behavior is quite strange. So, for instance, somebody would come kind of almost try to convince him 
that he has to stone her. Now, who would do that? I mean, who would do that? What? How? I mean, somebody committed, um, you know, a sin. They would think that she would go away, seek somehow to repair what happened, for ask for forgiveness, etc. But then, just to come and then force, as if force the Prophet to order her to be stoned, and then as if without stoning. Uh, that sin cannot be forgiven. Well, we know that the only thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not forgive is shirk, ishraq. That's according to the Quran. Why would somebody need to die in order for that to happen? Let me give you another point. Um, like I said, I didn't get uh, about this into the, um, in, this, in those slides, but I think I might as well talk about it a little. Okay. There is no sin that is related to belief in the Quran that would kind of um, entail or necessitate, necessitate murder or being killed. There's nothing, there's no such a thing. Um, this is somebody who made a mistake um, and that's that. And then the, the people did all kinds of things. People killed, uh, people um, robbed, people, etc. Um, nobody came to the Prophet ﷺ and said, well, kill me because I did that. And it is just not human nature, not human behavior. So the whole, the whole kind of narrative, very much suggestive of, of fiction, basically. And uh, those hadith, as you can see, even the second one in particular, seems to take the practice at its starting point, not the verse, not the alleged verse, but the alleged verse is being brought there for support because the starting point is the practice. So as if we're, we're stressing there used to be a verse in order to kind of further justify the, uh, the stoning um, there. Now, this is a listing of the earliest sources um, that mention Nesh abrogation. These are the earliest, when I wrote my book, the earliest I could find. So as you can see, the earliest of these accept only uh, legal. All of them accept legal. Mm. The earliest do not accept legal textual or textual. I, didn't, I mean by that they don't mention it. So they, they seem to have not been aware of it. And my conclusion is that these as concepts of abrogation developed later. This developed first, legal, legal textual, and textual developed afterwards. Mm. And you can see the differences even between, say, Shafi'i, who only implicitly accepted textual uh, abrogation. In fact, the earliest that mentioned, mentioned them all is in Muhasibi. And that's well into the third century. Mm -hmm. Basically, by the beginning of the fourth century, the, the three uh, forms of abrogation were well established. Well established. They become uh, part of uh, what would develop into uh, Quranic studies or ulum al-Quran, sciences of the Quran. So a lot of these books would always have a chapter uh, on nasr, on 
an obligation. Now, where I'm going with this, what I'm trying to suggest here is that abrogation is no explanation. We have two possible conclusions. Either we accept that the Mus'haf is an incomplete record of the Quran, or we have to accept that those hadith, that particular journal of hadith, just in case some people think and um, award me the title Quranist, I'm not actually a Quranist. Uh, I don't believe the Quran uh, covers everything and we need the Sunnah uh, to learn about our religion. But I'm talking about a particular genre of Hadith. There is a challenge for those who reject those Hadith. And there's a challenge for those who accept those, those Hadith. It's a personal choice. Each one of them has implications. What I try to show here is that accepting those hadiths would result in the Mus'haf being an incomplete record of the Quran. And is this uh, acceptable? Now, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about deliberate or unwittingly. So whether the, the Mus'haf is incomplete because it was a process, a divine instrument, that's what it is. If those hadith were inauthentic because they're deliberately kind of fabricated or unwittingly developed into that, that's what it is. In both cases, and these are not, just to you know, clarify, mutually exclusive. Somebody, and I would think maybe someone um, non-Muslim, might take um, you know, both of them and say, yeah, there are inauthentic hadith, but I still think the Mus'haf is incomplete. Some might still take that. Um, now, against all of this, we have this ayah. Oh, it yeah. is he who yeah. sent down the dhikr, remembrance, and it is we uh, preserving it. This is the preservation of revelation. Often people refer to this ayah in this context, but there's actually another ayah that is equally relevant and this, which is this, it is an impregnable book. Falsehood cannot approach it from before it or from behind it. It's a revelation from wise, praiseworthy. And that is protection of revelation against change. This is these two ayahs versus along uh, other arguments um, we talked about earlier, but I would like to keep this in mind and measure the hadiths that we've gone through against these two. What is it preserving here? Preserving what? How? And um, the, this expression, falsehood, cannot approach it from uh, before it or from behind it, meaning even afterwards, nothing can change this fact. And what's interesting in both verses, they actually refer uh, to the Quran um, as dhikr. Um, in the second verse, it's actually the verse before this verse. Uh, it's talking about Quran dhikr. Dhikr is, uh, means remembrance. It's the opposite of forget. It is the opposite of forget. Yet we have those 
hadith talking about how the verses were forgotten. Yet one of the names of the Quran is dhikr. Dhikr. It's dhikr because we remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's because it is, that's, that's the whole atmosphere of it. One of dhikr, of remembering. Uh, there's another kind of corroboration of what you're saying, I think, is that the not only today do we have one Quran with this, this, the, the exact number of surahs and uh, the contents are the same for all Muslims everywhere, but going back to the first century of the Muslim era, e- even the mushabs, the, the, the manuscripts we have, we don't find extra bits of Quran which no one identifies as revelation today floating around. We don't have these kind of extraneous bits of revelation um, that, that we might expect, perhaps, if um, you know if some of these views are true. So we have a very tight, clearly defined um, set of surahs that we right from the beginning that we have today. And we have the manuscripts now. We have them uh, going right back to at least the time of Uthman himself. Um, and as, as I keep on saying, we don't have these um, extra missing surahs that are not in today's Quran, for example. So that that would kind of corroborate, I think, what you're saying. I completely agree with you, Paul. And to add further, what's interesting, if you open a book like um, Meta-Tafsir, Meta-Exegesis, like uh, Tabaris, if you pick a random verse, you're likely to end up with multiple interpretations of that verse, uh, at times of a word in that. So you can see the amount of mental effort that was exerted in trying to understand the text, yet it's the one and the same text. Mm. All this effort, intellectual effort, did not result in a different text. Another point, again, along the lines you mentioned, we uh, Muslims have two main schools of thought, Sunnis and Shias, and there are others. Despite the differences between them, everybody reads the same Mus'haf. It's the same Quran. Yeah. Now, Omar could not have been able to, even if he wanted to burn other mushafs, just humanly is not possible to stop them. Mm-hmm. There were different people elsewhere who thought differently. People we know from history hid for centuries that came out later books. They did that and they came out and they would discover there are different versions of different books. Never with the Quran. It's always the same. Exactly. And just to finish off with one slide, which is exactly what you spoke about. And now this is about personal observation here. Ah. It's the Birmingham uh, mm. Mus'haf. Um, now, for those uh, who... Oh, that's... Um, we, we actually, I actually had the privilege of interviewing Professor Thomas, uh, who is the... Uh, the lead uh, academic on this on blogging yeah. theology, and uh, he's not a he's not a Muslim uh, at all. Um, but you know, he 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 testified, as I'm sure you're about to explain, that the uh, th- this very very early, if not the earliest Quran, is identical to the modern Quran. Okay, so so these are as you as you know, Paul, the earliest we have these two folios, four pages, um, found um, in the. Uh, Mingani collection at the University of Birmingham. I saw it there, as many people obviously went there uh, to see them. Um, in Hijazi script, um, they have skeletal uh, skeletal dots, ijan, but not tashkil, not the uh, small vowels um, uh, there. Uh, they um, 
they they have and what's interesting by the way tashkil came um kind of entered the quran uh, by they say abu aswad duli abu aswad duli died about 69 hijri and these don't have tashkil they're very early uh, according to uh, carbon dating um this could be as you know as early as from the first decade or two after the prophet sallallahu potentially even from uh, his time we don't know uh, they are from uh, two chapters uh, from al-kahf uh, chapter 18 and maryam 19 um, i actually uh, compared them word for word they're exactly uh, what uh, what you have and what we have in the mushaf today uh, but what was interesting and what that um, red mark is about. So when I was reading them there, I tried to read. It's not easy because there is a different script, um, but, you know, you can make out most of it. And I noticed as I was there standing, um, just looking at the folio reading, and I noticed in the second page that thing that is highlighted or kind of circled in red. And that's from one of the verses I mentioned earlier. Here it says, "La mubaddila li kalimati," no changer for his words. <coughs> that is in the oldest manuscript of the Quran. That particular expression, which I found very poignant and very touching, um, so I just wanted to highlight it mm-hmm. and to say that. The Quran is very difficult for a Muslim, and I think for a historian, to accept that the Quran, the Mus'haf that we have today, other than is other than anything other than the complete revelation of the Quran. And uh, thank you. Right. Well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you very much indeed for uh, that thorough, clear, uh, and comprehensive um, exposition of the, the subject of abrogation uh, in the Quran. Um, very, very interesting indeed. Uh, so thank you very much for that. So, um, and um, I, I, would, I would just conclude now by mentioning um, that um, uh, you, um, inshallah, will come back on the 27th of June uh, discuss a completely different subject, uh, the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, as we read um, in the Bible, of course. Um, and, uh, and you're going to be comparing the, uh, the, the accounts in the Quran and the Bible, checking them for historicity, ac- uh, accuracy, perhaps, um, and, and highlighting the, the differences uh, as well. So uh, that promises to be a, a fascinating um, uh, tour of that subject as well. The exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, of course, a very famous um, story in the Bible, uh, in, Gen- in Exodus, obviously, uh, in the Bible. So thank you for that. Look forward to that. Um, and yeah, thank you very much again, uh, Dr. Louis Fatui, for your time, your expertise, your scholarly thoroughness and clarity. Um, they don't always go together, those with scholars. You don't always get, sometimes you get the thoroughness without the clarity, uh, but you, you have them both combined uh, in your um, presentation today. So I do appreciate that. Um, thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me back. Thank you, Paul. Until next time. Thank you. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.
When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.